Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Biz Books. Thanks so much for joining me. My name is Gene Marks. I am here talking with John Martinka. John is the author of Company Growth Through Acquisition Makes Dollars and Cents. This is a conversation about buying and selling businesses based on John's great book. John, first of all, thank you so much for joining me. I'm, I'm really glad that you made it today. Oh, I appreciate being on. And I always like to clarify, I wrote the title of the book that Sense is spelled S-E-N-S-E. Correct. Uh, it so, is dollars uh, and it's not sense. just the money. Yeah, where it does make sense. And, and let's definitely get into that. Let, before we even jump into the book, um, tell John, tell me a little bit about yourself and how you've written a few books um, on MA related topics. How did you, you know, how did you come down to, you know, to writing this book? Well, this is my third book. Uh, my first one is called Buying a Business That Makes You Rich, Toss Your Job, Not the Dice. And it, it's aimed at the corporate exec who says not for the corporate world i want my own company yep then i wrote a book on getting out of business and preparing for it called uh, if they can sell pet rocks why can't you sell your business for what you want and then this one and then i wrote a uh short book uh, 60 some chapters had a couple people submit with me some chapters and every chapter short like two to three pages so you can pick up the book in the middle and read a tip on buy sell and it doesn't matter if you started at the beginning or not. It's a different, a little different concept. And, uh, you know, they proved to be pretty popular. Uh, and, you know, as, as an example, I got an email from a client at the end of last week who said, I'm on a plane and I'm rereading your growth by acquisition book. Uh, mm -hmm. Lots of good stuff in it. So that, that's the goal is to provide value. Yeah, that's great to hear. And and so how do you make your money? Are you a as a business consultant um, or as an author or, you know, what's your what's your livelihood? Not as an author. <laughs> uh, I look at the I look at these books as the best credibility builder one could have. They are. And if you read a book and on, you know, even if you're reading a novel, you say that person is creative. You read a business book, you're saying they know what they're talking about. Sure. And that's what it is. So we have a we have a, a consulting business and a, you know an M and A firm for the lower middle market, helping clients buy and sell businesses. Uh, a little bit of work on coaching on what to do before selling it, but I found most owners they come to flip the switch, not uh, not put the dimmer on to say I want to be out in three years, but I want to be out tomorrow. All right, fair enough. Um, so, like you, like you mentioned, you know, just we were getting started. I mean, and and the the book that you know, uh, after this book, even you know, you you have a lot of tips um, and advice for people, you know, wanting to sell and buy businesses. Um, so let's dig into it. I mean, the the whole concept of this book is why you know growing your company through acquisition makes sense. You started off with a story about a guy named John Hoyt, who um, founder of a, of a company called Picture Source. Um, he found, you know, that making an acquisition made sense. And I'm wondering if you can recall that story and, and retell it a little bit to us uh, to frame up what, what, what this book yeah. is. Yeah, John has become a good friend over the many years. And it started out when I was working with a small business here in the Seattle area. And uh, the owner, she needed to get out. She did what John's company did at the time. And John bought the company and he really liked the way I handled it. And we did four projects uh, after that. Uh, none of them major, you're not talking major M&A in this case, but all three of them were uh, add-on uh, companies, product lines to what he did. One was a little different focus. 
And I think you, you'll, as you know, from reading the book, uh, there's a lot of stories in it. There is. And every chapter ends with a, a story of someone uh, growing by acquisition. And people like stories. I like stories. I mean, that's what we remember. It definitely makes things come to life. There's no doubt about it. And he, you know, he bought this business you had mentioned because the, you said the previous owner was getting out of the business, correct? Yes. She, uh, she was really good at what she did. And, and John's company picture source was in the, at the, at the time and the whole industry has changed since right. uh, primarily the corporate art market. So going into the law firms, the corporate offices, et cetera, and you know, making it look like a desirable place with things on the wall or statues and figurines and everything else. And John was a pretty major player in that industry. And this was a small company and he added it on and- uh, Good, good, makes sense. Yeah. So um, you give in the second chapter, you list out like 19 reasons to grow by acquisition. Don't, don't worry, I'm not gonna ask you to rattle off the 19 <laughs> reasons. You probably could, but I don't wanna put you- I don't know if I could off the top of my head, but right. I do know that <laughs> I call, the ones I call- you know, the, the last three, the icing on the cake are, right. are really the important <laughs> ones. Well, you know what I want to do is that, you know, for those of you guys that are watching this and, and you know, or, or listening to this and want to, you know, read the 19 reasons, you certainly can, but let me just pull out a couple of ones and ask you just to comment on them, okay? Sure. Um, out of the 19 reasons, some of the ones that sort of caught my attention is that um, you said that when you, when you grow a business through acquisition, one good reason to do this is because assets are cheaper as a package. Can you expand on that? What do you mean by that? Well, if I want to expand my business into, a, let's just say, into another product line or even another geographical area, mm -hmm. I'm going to piecemeal things together from here, there, and everywhere. If I can go and buy that company, I get a package, right? And it's all, it's all, it's there. Uh, and I've, you know, I've had clients, and I, you know, we all read about things where all the acquisitions, but in the small business market, there needs to be a reason. Uh, there, there are a lot of industries where it's really hard to scale organically quickly. And acquisition makes a lot of sense. You know, it's funny too, because, you know, that's from the standpoint of the buyer, it makes complete sense. You know, you group in your assets and you can really, you know, negotiate a better price as that group. But I guess that that you can also turn that around and say this is advice for the seller of a business too. That you know you could potentially maximize your selling price if you were to break out your assets and and sold your company in pieces. Does that does that make sense to you? No, it does not to sell it in pieces. And uh, uh, you know the the whole is greater than the sum of the parts in a business because if you want, you know, someone says, "Well, I'm going to sell the equipment. I'm going to sell the customer list." You'll never get as much for all of that separately as you do. And, so, you know, there are a, a few reasons why someone selling a business is interested in someone in a related industry uh, growing by acquisition. Mm -hmm. And one of it is, often is price that a, a strategic buyer will pay a little more because they already have a lot of the infrastructure and they, they right. may buy, buy the company that has two a, two in the accounting department and they have three in the accounting department and they surely don't need five. So they save on some overhead. Uh, you know, they maybe walk into a different customer base where they can cross sell uh, their products and the other company's products. Uh, and, you know, they know the industry, there's less chance of the buyer stumbling. Makes sense. 
Makes sense. Um, another reason why you say it's good to buy, uh, you know, to, to grow by acquisition is because integration is easier. Can you explain what that means? Yeah. And integration is always a challenge when there's a, you know, whether, you know, there are very few mergers, there's always an acquisition. Mm -hmm. uh, and, but if, if it's a similar industry and the values are the same, it, it, it's pretty easy to blend them together compared to someone coming in from the outside and having to learn the industry. Makes sense. That completely makes sense. Um, you had given another, told another story about a guy named Fred Barkman, who um, you know, owned a company called Spectra Labs. And he went through the entire process of buying a business and he offered some tips at the end. And it, um, it, it was funny to me, you know, John, some of them, they, 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 were, they were all like the same theme. Like he goes, don't underestimate the amount of work and effort it's going to take to do this. You know, it takes a lot of energy to buy somebody's business. You know, it takes time and money to see it through. You know, <laughs> like you could just tell that when this guy was buying this business, you know, it was, it was this task, a monumental task that seemed even bigger than he was probably expecting it to be. So as you know, if you're a business owner or if you're looking to buy into a business, tell me a little bit about the amount of work that's involved, how you have to psychologically prepare yourself to go through this process, because it is a process. It is definitely a process. And uh, I'll comment, Fred, since the book came out, Fred has bought his fourth company. <laughs> okay. in and he's still alive to talk about it. <laughs> and actually was uh, larger in sales than his other ones, uh, I think, put together, but not as profitable. So that's mm -hmm. called opportunity. Okay. Uh, Fred is a very thorough and detailed or detail-oriented person. So uh, he paid attention, he pays attention to all the minutia. Right. And sometimes that's good. Right. Sometimes it bogs you down. Right. You just got to be careful. And Fred has built a good team, myself, his lawyer, uh, primarily. And, to, you know, let's say to keep things, keep things moving as best possible. Um, but it is, it, it is, it can be exhausting. You have a company, uh, an owner that's running one company that wants to make an acquisition is running a day-to-day -day business. Yes. You have someone selling, running a day-to-day -day business. And the acquisition, all you, you know, it has to come after they get done with their day-to-day, -day, taking sure. care of customers, solving employee problems, et cetera, et cetera. So it, it, it does take time and, it, and it, it's on top of your normal workload. So if someone says to me, look, I'm working 60 hours a week to keep the thing afloat uh, and I want to buy another company. Well, they don't have time. Right. What do you do in that situation? I mean, what do you advise clients that comes to you and tells you just that I'm working 60 hours a week, but I really want to buy this other company. Do you tell them not to do it? Or do you give them other kinds of advice? I think the first thing I would say is, what can you take off your plate to yeah. give you time to make this acquisition? which are things they probably should be taking off their plate anyway. Right. True. That's true. How do you feel about outsourcing it? Like, you know, hiring somebody independent to see through the sale almost as like a project manager on a project. No, not in my world. No, because it's the, the owner of the acquirer. It's their money. It's yeah. their life. Right. And this is not, this is far removed from the corporate M and a, where the numbers people come in with uh, stuff on a silver platter and say, here's, here's what we found in our analysis. Right. 
the owner has to have a deep understanding of what they're getting into. Because when, you know, it's the old, the buck stops on their desk. Yeah. So the owner's got to be deeply involved. Um, and, and again, it takes more time than you're probably expecting it to take. And it takes a lot of due diligence that, that has to be paid. Like if you're not ready for that, um, you shouldn't even be heading down the road of acquiring a company. Is that, that makes sense? Yeah. Whether you're an individual buying one, a company owner buying one. Yeah. It does take time and effort. And, and there's always frustration. You wonder what the heck is going on. I didn't expect that big speed bump there. Well, yeah. they happen. Yeah. 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 So you make me laugh because we, uh, my wife and I are talking about redoing our kitchen and, uh, and it's not even a money thing. We're just, we're, we're both busy and we're like, ugh. I mean, neither of us can stomach the thought of overseeing a project. And it's just one of those things where you really can't outsource it. You really got to pay attention to yourself, to the details. And like you also said, just like buying a business, who knows when somebody rips apart our kitchen, they're not going to find mold or some, you know, there's going to be some kind of an issue, you know, it's never going to go according to plan. And I think that's probably the same case whenever you acquire a company. Yeah, you can lay out the best plan, but you realize there are going to be speed bumps and deviations and you're going to have to go around the roadblock and uh, something will get thrown in at the last minute. Uh, but when you have a willing buyer and a willing seller and they both want to get it done, uh, you can usually find a way to get it done. Okay. What is it that you refer to in the book? Um, and I think it might have been Fred that referred to it as an industry buyer. What's an industry buyer? Well, that's a strategic buyer. Okay. That's someone who, as I mentioned, can take over uh, some of the functions of overhead. And uh, so my overhead's $2 million. The, your overhead is a million and a half, but combined it's three, not three and a half. That's mm. where the strategic buyer part comes in. So when you say it's a strategic buyer, I mean, like what's a non-industry buyer? Well, a non-industry buyer would be you or me going out and buying a widget company right? and saying, I'm sick of what I'm doing now. And usually with the people we work with in that area, they, they're, they are sick of the corporate world or maybe the corporate world is sick of them. Yeah, They've hit a plateau and they say, I'm not getting anywhere else in this company. I want my own business. I don't care if I'm going to work harder. I'm working for me. Hmm. I'm in charge of it. I can be creative. I can be, be the leader. And they're, they are not an industry buyer. So they are what is called truly a financial buyer right? at that level. And you go up, you know, private equity can be considered a financial buyer because they may not have anything similar. So they're looking at the rate of return, not a combined rate of return. It almost, you know, you, you write in the book, and again, this might be Fred's advice, but that industry buyers, you say, you know, they, they know where the skeletons are, under what rugs the secrets are kept, exactly what to ask, you know, what key metrics, what indicate, these are the industry buyers, you know, it almost seems like, you know, if you're not an industry buyer, you're, you're, you know, you probably want to get an industry buyer involved, even on a consulting basis, because, you know, if you're just a financial buyer, you, you really don't know where the skeletons are, or where the, where the secrets are kept. Is that, is that good advice? Uh, I think you need some Someone on your team who can help you dig in, whether it's someone from the industry or not. Mm -hmm. uh, there, you know, especially with the internet out there, there are more due diligence questions than anyone would ever want to use. And unfortunately, people try to use them all sometimes. Uh, but it's, you know, I'll, I'll just say 98% of sellers I've seen are, you know, they have no problem with what we call open kimono. Take a look at everything. 
Got it. <laughs> Does that mean that there may not uh, be an error of omission? They just didn't realize something mm. uh, that maybe that's that little thing over the top that someone in the industry will know to ask about. Mm -hmm. But very seldom do I have I ever seen people who want to hide things. You know, they they want to get it done. It's their legacy. So it, it, it's, it's the, you know, it, it, it's a good thing to, if you're in the industry to know, know some of the questions to ask that maybe it, you know, the owner has just, you know, the, they're the uh, unconscious competent in an area. Right. And they just don't even think about that. It, it just happens. Got it. I got it. Um, another piece of advice that's given is about um, cash flow, and and Fred and you, you know, you, you write in the book that it's all about the free cash flow, right? Can you can you explain to me what what you mean by free cash flow and why it's okay. so important? That is really an important subject to cover. Right. So there are a myriad of acronyms for uh, earnings. Mm -hmm. in the is when it comes to the buy sell world you know the, there's ebitda earnings before interest taxes depreciation and amortization uh, there is ebit you know just earnings before interest and taxes uh in the, especially in the smaller deal market uh there's the term sellers discretionary earnings or owners discretionary income which is add salary to profit and owner perks and benefits and this and that. And mm -hmm. quite frankly, it's very misleading. Uh, I think it, it was originally had to be designed by someone selling a business to say, well, the profit doesn't look that good, but if we add any owner salary, it looks a lot more respectable. Okay. So one of the things I learned from a, a veteran many years ago is, you know, they look in when they were doing deals, it was free cash flow is what you're really worried about. Mm -hmm. So EBITDA is a great term unless you have a uh, asset heavy business where assets have to be replaced. Mm -hmm. So just as an example, if you say, well, that manufacturing business is, you know, their EBITDA is a million and a quarter, but every year they have to spend 250,000 on machinery and vehicles and that, well, that's a real expense. Sure. And uh, I think Warren Buffett has some great quotes on EBITDA and, uh, and my favorite is uh, something I'm if I hope I get it completely right, but it's like those who you know buy into EBITDA must think capital expenditures are funded by the tooth fairy. Right. right. And that you know, so you get into that. So you take you take EBITDA and you add in the owner's salary, and then you subtract out fair market owner salary, because owners are notorious for taking not a market salary up or down. Sure. And then you subtract out uh, operating interest. In other words, if the company has had a line of credit mm -hmm. because of accounts receivable and when they're paid, you're going to have one. Mm -hmm. And then you subtract out anticipated capital expenditures. Mm -hmm. And that's your free cash flow. Mm -hmm. And that's what you have to pay off your debt on the business. Mm -hmm. That's whether the debt is to the seller, the bank, or even your own investment account. Mm -hmm. And that's what you have to grow the business mm -hmm. and have a, uh, a safety net, et cetera. So with EBITDA though, obviously that's earnings based. Um, free cash flow though is taken into consideration, cash payments that are made or maybe even cash receipts uh, that are received that, are, that might be outside of 
of you know, what we're showing on the P&L. Um, and we have to take those into consideration. Now, you mentioned capital expenditures, um, but th th there are other things that need to be taken into consideration for free cash flow, correct? I mean, I'm thinking maybe significant debt payments or uh, if a company receives, um, um, their, their business model is they get money up front but it doesn't necessarily get recognized as income over the course of the year because it might be advanced payments over you know a few years projects you know um, or even estimated tax payments don't necessarily figure into okay so that, those are good those are good points so let's cover the uh, the the one about someone making a deposit or you know cover sure. for revenue it's a balance sheet item not an income statement item so right. it doesn't show up in EBITDA it, right. if I pay you a hundred thousand dollars for a project that's going to start as a deposit for something starting in three months, you're going to put it on your balance sheet as cash in right. and a def and a current liability of right. deferred revenue. Correct. Uh, so that doesn't play into EBITDA. Right. Uh, in my world, uh, this is calculated on a pre-tax basis. You get into larger companies, they will, they will factor in taxes more often. But with the small business and especially with pass-through entities like S-Corps or LLCs, sure. uh, it, there's a lot of ways for an owner to uh, minimize taxes and not have, and unless they're C-Corp, they're not going to have corporate taxes. Okay. So even if you have like estimated taxes, even on the business, I mean, I realize if it's a pass-through, um, there's still, you know, taxes that are related to the income of the business and there's estimates that need to be made during the course of the year. Um, and a lot of times those estimates are made as distributions to the, you know, to the owner yep. then makes them personally, but they're still coming out of cash, you know, of the business. So, so you wouldn't figure that into free cash flow. Well, you're, when we do free cash flow, it's designed to figure what to go into the valuation and any, uh, what is called a debt coverage ratio. Right. So every bank will be looking at what is the debt coverage ratio. So that means if it's two to one, that means you have $2 of profit for every dollar of principal and interest payments. Right. And yes, there are, uh, your, your principal payments on debt are not uh, tax deductible. They're, mm -hmm. you know, they're an after tax amount, right. but at the corresponding level, uh, Going back to before I was in this business, the Tax Act of 1993, uh, you can amortize goodwill over 15 years. Mm -hmm. So you, you know it can get complicated, complicated when you start going. What is actually taxable? Right. That's exactly that, that's, that's a point. that's that is a paper write-off and nothing else. Okay. Um, staying on this topic, just because it's you know valuation is so important in trying to figure out you know how what this company is worth. You know, you know, EBITDA sounds, it, it's such a, um, it, it, it just, and you mentioned this earlier, it's such a, a, a bigger corporate type of thing. You know, it, it seems like if you're, if you're going to be focused on buying a relatively small company, you want to focus more on free cash flow than on earnings. Is that, what are your thoughts on that? Do you, do you agree with that or, or not? Well, I think you, you really should be saying free cash flow versus EBITDA. Right. And if I've got a service business that's, well, uh, you know, I'll use one of my past, past clients as an example. He's in the software industry. His capital expenditures are computers. Yep. They're negligible. Right. But you take a delivery business that's got 
and I'll make it easy. They got 21 trucks, a truck lasts seven years. That means they're buying three new trucks every year. Right. That's a real expenditure. Right. So that has to be taken into consideration from a cash flow perspective. I get that. What is, um, John, what is you, you write about this later on in the book? We're jumping all around your book. I hope yeah. you don't mind. Um, you, you mentioned seller's discretionary earnings. Um, yep. What is that compared to EBITDA? Well, as I quickly mentioned it. It was quick. It, it takes your EBITDA. It adds the owner's comp perks, benefits, et cetera, and creates an inflated number. Right. Uh, I don't know any legitimate business appraisers, and I don't know any banks who use that number. I mean, every bank will look at a deal and say, what is the owner slash CEO going to get paid? What is a fair market salary? Right. Not what they need. You know, if they buy a small company and they say, I need $400,000 salary and that company can't support it, the bank's not going to let them take a $400,000 salary. They're also not going to figure in if someone says, well, yeah, I, I, uh, I know the fair market salary is 200000 but I'm willing to take 100 for a while. They're not going to factor that in. They're going to say, what is the fair market salary? And they're going to take that, you know, that, so they're going to take that off that seller's discretionary earnings to calculate their debt coverage. Got it. I got it. You know, it, it seems like this whole, the, the exercise of going through, I mean, you, in, you, you have a whole chapter that's devoted about stock sales versus asset sales, you know, and um, you dig into the details that you, you've got free cash flow, you've got true cash flow, you've got, you know, mm -hmm. when earnings are capitalized, you've got discounted future cash flow, all right. It's a, you know, it's seller's discretionary. We have all this earnings. Meanwhile, like John, like the, the, the transactions that I've been involved with, with my clients, and again, these are small or mid-sized clients. They, they, every single one of them have been like asset-based, yeah. you know, which seems to be like the most simple way to go about this. So I, so I have a few questions on this topic for you. So first of all, do you find that most of your clients wind up having a, you know, asset purchase agreements versus a stock sale? Um, and if so, why? Let's start with this. It's a, it's a good topic. And I'm, you know, I'm not an attorney, I'm not an accountant, but I can tell you what I've seen. Yeah, what you've seen. I've been told. Because this is in your book. In Go simple ahead. terms, when you buy the stock of a company, you are buying its history. You're buying everything. Yeah. Uh, and yes, your lawyer can write all kinds of uh, workarounds for anything that may have happened pr prior to the sale, but are yours because you bought the stock. Yeah. So you buy a company and you're in it for a few months and all of a sudden there's a lawsuit that says six months prior to the sale, uh, that manager was uh, sexually harassing one of the employees. You are in the middle of it because it is your company. And yes, you are going to go after the seller, uh, et cetera. If it's an asset sale, you're, it's a different company and it's you know, this is a very simplistic view. It's mm -hmm. going to go right to the seller. Yep. 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 Now, as far as, uh, uh, as far as an asset sale in that situation, what the, you also get the benefit. You don't, you don't have that history of the company, mm. but you also get to amortize the goodwill. Yes. In a stock sale, you don't get to amortize the goodwill. So, and when it's an S corp or an LLC, there's virtually no difference tax-wise to the seller, asset or stock sale. 
where it comes things come in to make be little caveats are uh i can remember one deal and the company had about 300 leases on apartments and they they then they rented them on a short-term basis to corporations who had people moving in coming in for training things like that so they'd rent them to these big corporations for one two three months at a time mm-hmm. we a stock sale was done so they didn't have to go and do 300 new leases and of course there were protections for the buyer right uh, right you know where you really run into complications are when it's a the owners who still have a C-Corp and C-Corp is its own entity. It pays its own taxes. But when, if it's sold on an asset sale basis, there's double taxation. The company mm-hmm. pays taxes. And when they distribute the money to the owners, they pay taxes. Mm-hmm. And there are very few reasons to have a C-Corp. And most of the time when I see it, the CPA or attorney will tell you, I've advised them for years to convert to an S-Corp and they just never got around to it. Right. But, th- but it happens, but it, it happens. happens. Sometimes their retained earnings can be so high that if they convert, there's a big tax hit. Hmm. Uh, but for the most part, these small businesses should be an LLC or an S corp. You know, uh, the other thing I also mentioned is that uh, you, you mentioned hmm. about when you buy the stock of a company or inheriting liabilities, you gave the example of like, if there was a harassment suit, you know, by some former employee, I mean, good luck you know, even, even, even if you had an agreement that those owners are, are going to remain liable for anything that happened before. I mean, a lot of times, good luck finding them. Sometimes the owners are, you know, dead, you know what I mean? Or they've moved on. So there's that. The other big issue that I found uh, with buying stock and inheriting liabilities is in, environmental, um, right? I mean, you know, sometimes yeah. you'll, you know, right, you'll, you'll purchase the property, it'll be part of the deal. And then you find out that, you know, it's part of a super fun site, you know, you know, two years later and that really throws a lot of wrenches into the game so but wait so, let me let me stop you there because you know it shouldn't take you two years to find out it's on us true you would have a study and, done uh, you know if you're buying if there's real estate involved or if the company uses hazardous materials mm-hmm. it's a good reason to consider getting what is called a phase one environmental review which is is it would a, a written report and then if there's any suspicion of issues then they maybe drill and take samples right which by the way i think the uh you know it, not only is it a good idea but if you have a bank involved they would most likely require that you do that um i would assume before they get involved in the financing um which brings me to my next question so you've got this whole chapter on stock sale versus asset sale and like i just said before you've got all sorts of definitions for cash flow and uh you know sellers discretionary earnings and discounted future cash flow and all that and I guess my, my question is, um, why is that important to the buyer? Uh, is it all about, is it just debt maintenance? You know, you, you know I'm going to buy this company for its assets. We're going to get an valuation done of the assets of the company. You know, it's, you know, inventory is inventory, fixed assets are assets. We'll have some kind of, you know, some kind of agreement on what goodwill is. Um, but why do I want to go into such detail as to figure out free cash flow? EBITDA maybe, seller's discretionary earnings, discount of your, what, what, why is that so important for a buyer even when they're buying assets? Tell me about that. Simple terms, so they don't overpay. Okay. So let's take a, let's take a, let's do an example. Okay. Uh, someone's buying a business and we'll, we'll say is 
there's $500,000 of profit on the tax return and financial statements. The owner's taken a salary of $200,000. Medical benefits are 20 and there's a little bit of you know, they say, oh, my cell phone and some travel and this, and let's say it's another 20. So it's uh, uh, two, well, let's just say it adds up to another 50. So they're at 250,000. If you value it based on that 750 and there's 500, 500 earnings, mm-hmm. 250 of salary and perks, mm-hmm. and you get in the business and you can say, well, I got to take a salary. Mm-hmm. My mortgage company is not going to say it's discretionary. Remember the term seller's discretionary earnings. Right. I still have to have medical benefits. Right. I have to have a cell phone. How do I keep in touch with my employees when you know, I'm not in, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And if you just take a simple multiplier of four, so four times 500 is 2 million, four times 750 is 3 million. You know, and then you, 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 bottom line you're only going to have five five hundred to pay off the debt right and you your debt payments let's not even get in what the debt payments could be right but you you know if you could get a loan based on that you're, you're going to have cash flow issues right and you know what can cause cash flow issues more than we think of oh there's a problem there slowness is growth right growth sucks cash right Right. You, I have to hire more people. I have to buy another piece of equipment. I have right. to have more raw materials. I have more inventory for the shelves, whatever it is. And then you don't get paid for it for months. Hmm. Got it. When you um when you work with clients, and again, you do address this book, but I I I, I want to make this clear to our listeners and 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 watchers. Um, you know, when it comes down to value a company, John. Uh, there's, you know, there's the balance sheet approach and there's the income statement approach, right? There's the, or the cash flow approach. Um, you can look at a balance sheet and determine its assets. Um, and, and, you know, the big question mark is what goodwill is, but you can come up with a valuation of what a company is just by looking at what their, you know, what, what their assets are worth. But then again, you can have a different picture altogether when it comes to a company's earnings or cash flow. So which approach do you normally recommend to your clients when they value a company, when they come up with a purchase price? Should they focus on a, on a target balance sheet or should they focus on cash flow? Or is it both or does it depend? I learned from a op- really good operator of pretty good size operations how important the balance sheet is. Mm-hmm. That said, the balance sheet is nothing when it comes to valuation compared to uh, what is the cash flow return on investment. That's really all it is, is small businesses. And you have to make sure the balance sheet is in good shape, mm-hmm. uh, that there's not a, not a lot of need for asset replacement, that perhaps inventory is usable and saleable, that you're not going to be just saying, oh, there's a million dollars of inventory, uh, but only uh, two thirds of it is any good. Mm-hmm kind of thing. So we get into the cash flow of the business. I see. And there are all kinds of statistics. We subscribe to three different databases, services on done deals information. And you can look at it and you can say what, you know, the average for this kind of industry is companies, you know, say doing, uh, you know, 
five to 15 million in sales sell for an average of five times earnings, five right. times EBITDA. Right. And you, you know, it's a good starting point, but it's an average, right? Right. And an average is some are above and some are below. Very few are right on the average. So you, you know, a simple way of looking at it, and this is not evaluation or appraisal or anything is I've got a company that's right in the middle. They're doing 10 million in sales. They're making, you know, industry, the average of a 15% profit, million and a half dollars, EBITDA, we'll call it. And should they sell for five times that million and a half? Well, sure. what if one... What if you got two companies like that and one has 80% of their sales to three customers and one has 80% of their sales to 80 customers? Right. And we got a bigger risk in the first one. Right. You know, what if you got a management team and an owner's bragging, yeah, these people have all been with me 35, 40 years. Well, that means your management team's about to retire. Right. So you look at the risk factors, you look at the potential for growth. Where's the low-hanging fruit? Um, I had a client buy that bought the second business. And the business doing a little under a million dollars in earnings and they paid six and a half. Hmm. And it sounds crazy. Mm -hmm. In nine months, they were up 50% because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. they saw what they could do. Right. They saw what wasn't being done. My no takeaway, my takeaway from this is that it, you're, you're valuing a business based on different factors. And even if you take a, an asset based approach, you still have to look at cash flow to determine your return on investment. Uh, so if you're going to spend a million dollars for the assets of a business, you need to turn around and say, okay, well, over the next five years, what's my cash flow going to be from that business? Will I not only be able to maintain my, my debt service, but get a return on investment by spending the million dollars for the business itself? So it's, it's like a combination of the two. Yeah, um, you've got to have a strong balance sheet and got to know what you're getting into with the balance sheet. Yeah, but it's the cash flow, you know, you know and cash flow that's going to prove whether or not you're getting that return. You know, we only, I, I just, and I apologize because there's, I have so many questions for you. It's such a great book. Uh, but I did want to get your thoughts for, for also our listeners. You do have a section where we talk about financing, you know, business. And, and we did briefly talk about, you know, maintaining debt. But you had an interesting little section about conventional debt versus, you know, SBA, Small Business Administration Loans. Um, you know, the SBA offers two loan programs, uh, you know, a, a 7A loan program and a 504 micro loan program. And both of those programs can be used for uh, to, to acquire assets and businesses if, if you so choose to do that. What are your thoughts, John, on SBA loans versus just getting a traditional bank loan? And, and I apologize, an SBA loan does get done through a banker, through an SBA lender. Um, but what, what are your thoughts on going okay. that route with an SBA lender versus just a non-SBA lender? It, it's a, it, it's a, that's a good point. And, and uh, the SBA 7A program is what is used for business acquisitions. Goes up to a $5 million loan, including fees and working capital. Mm. Uh, so for many buyers, that means the deal size up to between six and perhaps $7 million with a seller note and buyer equity. Uh, so what, what are the big differences? Well, before we get into that, the, these days, the banks, are, if, it's, if it fits in the SBA model, the banks are going to push the SBA program. And the bank makes the loan, the buyer pays a fee, which is really insurance, and the SBA guarantees uh, at least 75% of the loan, more with some you know, 
caveat, look, caveats of different types of situations, but 75%, that's collateral to the bank. Right. So well, let's look at some key factors. The SBA loan is amortized over 10 years. Most conventional loans, seven years. SBA is going to require a down payment of just a little over, what it works out to a little over 10% of the price. Uh, conventional loans are generally going to be 25, sometimes 20, but often 25%. Right. Uh, SBA is considered a cash flow lender, SBA loans. The bank right. will considers cash flow as an asset, and they don't need full collateral. They will take business collateral. They will take home equity. Uh, but in a conventional loan, the, no matter what the bank says, it's rare where they are not going to, they're going to look at it and say, uh, they're going to need not enough bank. collateral. Yep. Yep. Uh, and then you get in, you know, SBA, you are going to have a personal guarantee. Now, on a conventional loan, uh, there are some differences on what banks will take, but they're generally going to want to have some kind of corporate or personal guarantee. I mean, you just, you know, as a, uh, you're selling me so far, you're selling me on an SBA loan. I mean, is there any, is there any huge drawbacks towards going? Well, or, they cost more, the interest rates a little higher and there's a lot of paperwork, but okay. if the bank's not going to give you a conventional loan or you don't have 25% or you don't have a, it's a, it's, banks should want deals where there's a heck of a lot of goodwill because that yeah. means a heck of a lot of profit. Yeah. Instead of things that you can touch and feel and, you know, drive around. Right. Makes sense. So, Makes sense. So the bank is going to push it because of that guarantee part that they get. So it can't, you know, for those size deals, it can be a win-win-win. And for someone says, I don't want to put up my house. I don't want to send a personal guarantee. Well, as I had heard through a, you know, a bank president, and he says, you know, you're not willing to you know, mortgage your house for, for this deal, but you want me to? So you want me to lend you the money? Makes sense. Makes sense. Um, listen, there's a lot of stuff in this book that we have not covered in the course of this interview, but I, I want to end it by asking you this question. The, the title of your book is Company Growth Through Acquisition Makes Dollars and Cents. Cents is S-E-N-S-E. Um, it's a statement. It's not even, you don't even put it in there like it may make dollars and cents. You know, it's an option. You know, it, you, know you make a statement that Growing your company through acquisition makes dollars and cents. The reason why I, the, the base for this question is, is well, well, my question is really why does it make dollars and cents? And I, and I want you to answer the question in the frame of the fact that we've had over 10 million startup applications filed in the past two years. We're on track for another 5 million this year. Uh, we have um, a, a demographic of millennial employees who are now getting older than a lot of people think that have, that have got 10 years plus in the business world. And many of them are looking to be their own boss, you know, and, and fly the coop from their jobs and maybe, you know, start their own businesses. And I've always thought like you that, you know, rather than start a business, it, it's, it would always seem if I was a 35 year old person and I wanted to be my own, I, I, I'd be more into buying a business than starting something from scratch. I do believe that growing through acquisition does make dollars and cents. Why do you believe that, that growing your company makes dollars and cents? And do you think it's a very good option for a startup entrepreneur as well? Well, 
it can be. So if we take the startup entrepreneur out of the tech world where, you know, they're just going to write code and have, have something we're talking in my world, more traditional businesses, right? Uh, they make something, they sell something, they service something. Employee, uh, yeah, employee, employer-based businesses type of, right? Yeah. yeah. So the, uh, you know, for the, the, for the person who says, should I start something or should I buy something? If they have the, the, the money and, and startup can get by on, you know, my spouse works, so I have sweat equity. You can't do that when buying the business. Uh, but if they have the, uh, I, I say, if they have the ability and the experience to manage people, processes, money, and enthusiasm, they should be buying a business. But you have, you know, people are the most important. Right. If you can't manage people, right. you're not going to be a good business owner. Right. Uh, you can take all these terms over resignation and, you know, everything going on now. But if you're a bad boss, your people aren't going to stay. There are options. Right. So if we look at the small business owner that says, I want to grow, and I want to grow faster rather than slower, you buy another company. Right. You know, you, you know, it has to be the right fit. Let's get that. You don't just go and buy something for the sake of buying something. But all of a sudden, you've got a bigger platform. So your organic growth at 10%, if you were doing 4 million in sales and you buy a company doing two, and you grow 10% a year, and you're now growing by 600, not $400,000 a year. And then opportunities start to come to you. We started talking about my friend Fred at the beginning. Mm -hmm. uh, the last one he got, they came to him because they, they had noticed he had bought three companies in the industry. He's mm -hmm. a buyer. People like working for him, et cetera. And you get that reputation comes out there and deals can come to you. Everybody, the book is called Company Growth Through Acquisition Makes Dollars and Cents. I've been speaking with John Martinka. John, first of all, where can our viewers, listeners reach you or find out more about you? Well, uh, they can go to martinkaconsulting.com, M-A-R-T-I-N-K-A consulting.com. Uh, phone number is 425-576-1814. And my books are all available on Amazon. Fantastic. Hey, this is a great conversation. I, I do want to say to, you know, for those of you watching or listening to this conversation, we, we have scratched the surface of this book. It is one of those books where uh, if you are a business owner uh, that is doing some succession planning or looking to exit your business, and you're hopefully you're planning this in advance and not expecting to do this next week, it's the kind of book that you not only want to read, but you want to keep on hand and go back to a number of times because there's just advice there that uh, resonates and and really is very evergreen. It, it will never it will never grow old, other than you know as opposed to me and John here. So thanks, John. <laughs> I appreciate you spending the time, and uh, hopefully we'll speak again in the future. I appreciate you doing the book as well. I really I appreciate it. you having me on, and uh, thank you for the kind words. You got it. You take care, everybody. You've been watching and listening to another episode of Biz Books. My name is Gene March. Thanks so much for joining me. I'll be back in another two weeks with another interview. Uh, with another great author like John uh, about whatever book they have written that will hopefully help you grow your business. Again, thanks for watching and listening. Take care.